morning. Yesterday, I officiated the funeral of a dear friend named Howard Heck. Howard would have turned 100 yesterday. He was my next door neighbor. He was like my adopted grandfather. Uh, most Saturdays when Miles was younger, uh, we would uh, head over to Howard's house to hang out, spend time with him, hear stories, and really get words of wisdom about life. Um, I often would talk to Howard particularly about the loss of friends. Some of you remember in the early days of our church plant, I lost someone very close to me, a, a dear friend and colleague. And Howard was just the person to help pastor me through those moments because Howard had lost so many friends over the years. Uh, you don't live to be 99 without seeing a lot of loss around you. But also because Howard was a veteran of World War II, Howard was a tail gunner in the Pacific, and his best friend, Dick Green, didn't make it home. And we would often talk about the loss of a friend before their time, when they were still in the vibrancy of life. And even in his late 90s, he could look off into the distance and his eyes would tear up and he could say, Tim, I can see Dick's face across the room still. And yet he taught me what it meant to face pain with hope, um, with the hope of the resurrection, and uh, with a maturity of, of of growing amidst loss and grief. Because Howard was an interesting person. He never stopped growing, not in stature. He was maybe 5'3", okay, and, and, and shrinking. <laughs> um, I think I met him, he was maybe 5'4". Before he passed, he might have been 5'2". Um, but he never stopped growing. He was always seeking that question, have I lived a good life, God? Have I lived an honorable life? Have I done well in this race you've set before me? And he was asking that question till the very day that he died. We're almost done with our sermon series in 2 Timothy. We're nearing the end of this book, and interestingly enough, we're nearing the end of Paul's life. Paul is looking back on the race that the Lord has set for him, and he's looking at it and saying he, he's run it. He feels as if he is a drink offering that is being poured out to God. This image of, of uh, it's a Eucharistic image, an Old Testament image of an offering given to God. And he feels as if God is pouring him out as a sacrifice to himself. And yet he doesn't complain about it. He sees it as this great honor that has been given to him, a life of service to his king. And so today what I want to look at are three images of the good life that Paul gives us today. Three images of the good life. First, this is counterintuitive to us, almost all of these are except for the last one. First, this image of self-sacrifice to God. We think that is a marker of the bad life. We think that is a marker of God being, you know, a, a tyrant in heaven. But Paul didn't see it that way at all. Rather, he saw his very life as a self-sacrifice for God's glory and saw that as one of the great marks of goodness in his life. Second, I want to look at his struggle. I have never met a thriving Christian that wasn't struggling in some way. We tend to think that struggle is the presence of immaturity, but there can be immature struggles in life. But I want to look particularly today at what does mature struggle look like in the Christian life. 
He talks about a fight, a race. And we'll get into the Greek just a little bit uh, to look at what that really means. And then second, a life of heavenly mindedness. This is one that we can understand. He is nearing the end of his race and he cannot wait to come face to face with Jesus. A mark of maturity is always looking to that day while we, when we shall see the glory of God with unveiled faces and our King will give us the crown. So if you would, please turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And forgive me if I'm slightly lower energy today. Yesterday was a, it was a hard day for our family, uh, but a hopeful day too. So 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. First, we see this image of Paul understood that his life was a sacrifice offered to God. We don't see drink offerings too much in the Bible, but it's interesting. The very first one that we see is after Jacob wrestles with God, he gets renamed Israel, which means the one who wrestles with God. And after that striving with God, that wrestling with God, we see the first image of a drink offering being poured out. And you know, you see this all throughout history, right? Um, uh, in Indiana, you know, where I grew up, you'll often tip over your Coors Light to remember a friend that passed away maybe, right? It's a drink offering that's given. But Paul is saying, God, you are tipping me out as a drink offering. Now, clearly this is, this is an image of, of the one who was fundamentally poured out for us. The one that we remember being poured out every week when we pour out the wine. Christ Jesus, whose very blood was poured out on our behalf to bring us into eternal life. And what we see is that Paul understands that, yes, his life of sacrifice is nothing compared to the work of Christ Jesus. That is the ultimate sacrifice once and for all for God's people. But we are also, as God's people, called to live in self-sacrificial service to God. And this tells us a couple of things about the Christian life. First, it tells us we aren't the center of the story. Paul isn't the main character. He's not even a supporting character. He's a cup of wine being poured out. But he's being poured out with a purpose. He's being poured out for the glory of God. And the second thing he sees is, it's interesting, there's no contradiction here between the love of God and God leading his people through self-sacrifice. What we tend to think is God cannot be glorified in my pain, or God cannot be at all causative in my pain. Those can't go together. If he is causative in my pain, then he's not someone worth being glorified. If uh, I am in pain and he's being glorified, it's purely by happenstance, but he's not in control. But Paul, the one who we get all of the great images of adoption, of unconditional love, of the glory of the Father being showered upon us by the sacrifice of his son, all of these images, we wouldn't know the gospel if it wasn't for the letters of the apostle Paul being written by the Holy Spirit to his church. This same person sees no contradiction in the unconditional, overwhelming love of God. 
and him leading him through a season of pain. And there are days where we just need to hold this in faith. There are days where we are led through seasons of sacrifice and pain where we say, God, is there any other way to bring you glory other than this? Because if there is, just show me, let's take that path. That's the path I want. That's the path I frankly want for you. That's the path I want for my children. But that is not the path our Lord brings us on. I don't know when one day he will unveil to us his master plan and, and how all of the suffering that we have faced will be for his glory. Because there are days where I say, how on earth can this glorify you, God? And these are the days that we hold it in faith that the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ brought God glory and he carries us through our suffering, not as one who stands aloof from it, not as one who has never touched it, not as one who can't associate with it, but the one who has actually entered into it with us. We aren't given a clear answer as to why God chooses to pour us out as a drink offering. I wish there was another way, but this is the path he takes us on. And what we recognize is that he never leaves us in it. So first we see that Paul does not see his life being a sacrifice to God as being a contradiction with the love of God. He sees it as a great honor that's been given him. But next I wanna look at this other image because Paul is nearing the end of his life and he keeps layering on these images of wrestling. Verse seven says this, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now the fight here is probably not a military image. It's probably um, an athletic image. It's probably more like boxing or wrestling. The race, you can imagine what that is, a long and grueling race. You've all already heard my opinions on running. I don't know why anybody does it. Uh, I look like a runner and I'm not a runner. Uh, but it's interesting, okay, the word for fought the good fight, the Greek word for that is agonizomai. Now it's pretty easy to understand where we get the English word agony agonizomai, that his good fight that he has fought on behalf of God, this wrestling that he has done with the forces of evil and his own sinfulness, this great work he has done for the church, it feels like agonizomai to Paul. It has been an agony that has been set before him. Martin Luther, some of you know him, uh, he argued that the right way to understand being a theologian uh, was through three Latin words. And he believed everyone was a theologian. So this is just him talking about what it means to be a Christian. He talks about oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. Do we know what these mean? Some of you do. I know some of you do. Oratio means prayer. And it means prayer particularly by praying God's word that we are so fallen that we don't even have our own words to pray. God gives us words to pray. Luther is actually talking about Psalm 119 in the context of these this, you know, three concepts. But he says the mark of a, of a theologian is someone who is constantly bringing God's word to God, that our prayers themselves, the words we speak to God are formed by God himself. But we also know that the life of the theologian, the life of the Christian, the life of the one who thinks about God is one who speaks to God and is, an ad is, and is addressed by God. It's a life of prayer. But then he has his second one, meditatio. 
That's a pretty easy Latin word, right? Meditation. Pretty simple to figure out. Here's what he says about meditation. You should not only meditate inwardly in your heart, this is interesting, but also outwardly by repeating the words of scripture out loud and, and rubbing at the written word like a sweet smelling herb. Remember, this is the very beginning of when people actually had scriptures. So he said, you should actually touch it by reading and rereading it carefully and attentively and reflectively to gather what the Holy Spirit means by it. We should meditate on God's word. Now, up to this point, all of you are saying, Tim, how, one, why are you saying this? And two, that's pretty obvious, right? A theologian, a Christian, because we believe in the theologianhood of all believers. If you have thoughts about God, you are either a good theologian or a bad theologian. You are thinking rightly or you're thinking wrongly or, or he's just teaching you in the process. But the final image that Luther gives is interesting. Tentatio. And tentatio means agonizing struggle. That the mark of the theologian is one who struggles with God. One who wrestles with God. Luther argued that the, mark, the fundamental reality of a theologian is a sinful human in the presence of a justifying God. One who recognizes the glory of God, the majesty of God, and the sinfulness of their own heart. How can that not breed a struggle with God? And what we see all over Holy Scripture is that God welcomes those who struggle. Israel is named the one who wrestles with God. Peter, we see time and again, wrestles with our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul describes his very life as a wrestling match. Martin Luther, this great person who, who sparked the Protestant Reformation, is characterized by this agonizomai before God. And here's what I just want to communicate to you. So often in life, we think that wrestling is a mark of spiritual immaturity. And there are times where we are in unhealthy wrestling with God, where we are just unwilling to submit to him in some way. Okay, we know what those are at times. But there are other times where we will wrestle and God welcomes us to wrestle. Some of you, all of you, I hope, have some sin in your life that you're wrestling with. And you're saying, God, why can't you by your Holy Spirit just zap me? And just like a surgery, get rid of this. Uh, some of you are, are longing for freedom from a bitterness you face because of an injustice being done upon you. And you wrestle with God, Lord, why can't I still let this go? Some of you wrestle with the justice of God. Lord, how can you take innocent life and allow the wicked to prosper? Some of you wrestle with the electing fairness of God. Lord, this doesn't seem fair. But struggle marks the life of the Christian because ultimately what God is doing is he is wooing us to himself, the one place of peace, the one safe harbor amidst the storms of this world, the one place where strivings truly cease. You know, this is why you've heard me talk so, so much about, Tim, why do you make a secondary doctrine of the impassibility of God so central? Like God can't change? This is why. This is why. One, it's not a secondary doctrine. There's no Nicene Creed without that, by the way. Uh, but two, this is why we need one place 
One place where we can go to find peace. One place that brings calm amidst the storm. One place where in the, 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 the junk of our hearts, there is one place where we can go that's absolute peace and calm and the presence of God. And it doesn't mean that this side of heaven, that we will experience the fullness of that peace. But in this life, he can bring us peace. Do you remember what God does? So Job, of all the people, to be marked by tentatio, struggle. It's the book of Job, right? And all of his friends tell him what to do with his struggle. Okay, so here's how you get that tentatio. The, um, you might have also heard the German word. This is my nerd side coming out. Onfectum, right? It's another. It just means... Um, Bart would call it the crisis of being with God. Most of you are like, that's why we go to this church, Tim. You're like the crisis guy. You're the, you're the onfectum guy. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, but when you look at Job, all of his friends give him very reasonable advice. And then what happens at the end is God shows him his glory. And that's all he does. We read it as him giving him a smackdown. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? You know, do you know what the, you know, the birds in the air, where their nests are? Do you know what the Leviathan in the deep is? Blah, blah, blah. He's painting a picture of him standing above all creation in glory. What's happening is Job is being brought into the glorious presence of God, and he finally has peace. And one day in the new heavens and the new earth, my theory is um, either with all of our struggling, God's going to show us and he's going to give us a huge graph of all of our pain and our sorrows and say, you see here, it makes sense, right? And it won't even then because our brains can't fathom it. But I think the more likely option is that we will finally see the face of Jesus, the one place where strivings cease and we'll forget we had the question to begin with. So what I want to tell you today is tentatio, the agony, is not necessarily a mark of immaturity in you, but it's an invitation from God to bring that to him. Now, let's look back at the hope that awaits us. Look at verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul ends by looking ahead at the hope that awaits him, that one day Jesus will crown his head with a crown of righteousness. Now, I want to look at two things about that. Don't let that image, don't just pass by that image too quickly. First, he gives him a crown. A crown is a marker of identity. A crown is only given to someone in the royal family, right? He finally is giving him, your identity has finally been completed. Who I've been telling you you have been this whole time, you finally get to live. But what do we do in this life? These identities that we're trying to form, these personas that we're trying to project onto the world is we're trying to crown our own head with glory. We're trying to show everyone why we ought to be beloved why we ought to be respected, why we ought to be revered by them in some way. And what Paul recognizes here is that that ultimate hope is that the crown that Christ gives us, 
because of our sonship, because of our daughterhood, because of his inheritance of the kingdom that he shares with us, that is the ultimate mark of who we are. And while we will one day have that in its fullness, the work of the Spirit today is to lead us into ever-increasing knowledge that we are that person even now. That the crown that gives us glory is not the crowns that we make for ourselves. It is not based upon our reputation. It is not based upon our wealth. It is not based upon our career advancement or our children. It is based solely upon the glory of Christ Jesus that he shares with us as he calls us his beloved brothers and sisters in the kingdom. My prayer for you is that you would look to that crown as your ultimate source of worth instead of the crowns that you're making for yourself. But then the second thing we see is it's a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. I've brought this up with you before, but the part of heaven that we don't think about enough and the part of heaven that I meditate on quite a bit these days is that we will be made fully righteous. What that means is you won't have an agonizing struggle with sin anymore. Uh, (laughs) Oh no, is it gonna be this the whole time? Aaron, is that you? Okay. We're gonna become that church. We're gonna get a light show. We're gonna get the fog machine going. Let's roll. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. It did something, bud. Um, Okay, what was I saying? Crown of righteousness. Okay, one day you're not going to sin anymore. One day you're not going to sin anymore. One day you won't be your own worst enemy. One day the devil will be completely vanquished and not torment you anymore. And my prayer for you is that you would look to that day with hope, with longing, that our Lord Christ Jesus upon the cross truly took away all your sins onto himself, he wore a crown of thorns for you so that he could give you his crown of righteousness. And that truth is not only for tomorrow, that truth's for today. The only way to experience, you know, freedom from sin in your life today is to know how true that is of you. The only way to know that your father in heaven doesn't look at you with kind of a smile, but mostly an asterisk, asterisk, the thing, you know. Um, I've got a couple words I just can't get. I'm, I'm just not going to. Um, he doesn't look at you like that. He truly sees you already as his beloved children. And my prayer for you is that you would truly believe that. I think that's the only thing that will transform lives today. That's the only thing that's going to reach the lost. That's the only thing that's going to help you get freedom from sin is to truly believe that Christ Jesus has given you his crown and one day will give it to you fully. But then the last thing I want to point out is the best part of heaven, that Jesus is the one who gives you the crown, that you'll get to look at him in the face. You don't get a crown with your back turned, right? The king looks at you and hands it to you, that he will be there with you, that that race will finally be done and you'll finally be welcomed home. And until that day, My prayer is that we would walk together in love, that we would seek to wrestle with God together and grow by the power of the Spirit. As we await the day with unveiled faces, we shall see his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that 
by your wounds we are healed, that by your mercy we have been made new. Lord, would we truly seek to live the good life, a life of self-sacrifice for your glory, a life of wrestling as we seek to understand you and understand ourselves, and a life of longing to meet you face to face. To the glory of your name we pray, amen.